Welcome to the Renaissance Podcast, and thank you for joining with us to worship and learn more about God. We are so excited to have you be a part of this week's service. For more podcasts and services from past weeks, or to join us online on Sunday mornings, check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Now, enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. How are you? Terry, keep it down, man. What the crap? Like, just, I felt so bad for Chris. I'm like, Terry, hold on, brother. It's all good. Uh, anyways, welcome to Renaissance. If, uh, if I look haggard, uh, frazzled, um, know this, I hardly slept a wink last night. My uh, oldest daughter, who's 19, um, I put her on a plane for Spain yesterday. I know. And in God's providence, right, his humorous providence, my wife was out of town with my other daughter, and I was responsible to make sure she got everything she needed to go to Spain. Yes. So anyways, at 3 a.m., I, I noticed she landed in Amsterdam. Yay. She made her connection flight in Atlanta before I went to bed, which is good. And you can't get lost on a plane over the Atlantic, I wouldn't think. But so she made it. But I was so terrified that she would get from Amsterdam to Spain. And at that point, the Delta app just quit working. I had no idea. I had no idea. Legit. Sorry. Sorry. And, um, and I'm kind of losing my mind. Can I just share this with you? This is not my message. And I might not even preach today. i just tell you. <laughs> I don't even care at this point. Um, but Joe, you need to hear this. Uh, Joe caught me in the gallery at about nine something. And I was frazzled and may have said some um, things that I wouldn't say in front of a mixed company. And he goes, can I just pray for you, Jeff? And I said, sure. He starts to pray for me. Joe, did you notice? As soon as you began to pray, my phone rang and my daughter Riley called. Did you, ch- did you see that? And I'm like, oh, God is so good, isn't he? Like I was losing my ever-loving mind because I didn't know. And then Joe prays for me and my daughter calls and says, she's fine. Um, thank you for um, not caring, but I just wanted to tell you anyways. <laughs> like, I thought this was a church. Are we going to do anything in the Bible? Yes, the answer is yes to that. If you have a Bible with you, we're going to be in the book of Esther. It's an Old Testament book. Um, And we're going to be in it for the next five weeks or so. It's 10 chapters. Hear me when I say this. It's 10 chapters, which means in Bible speak, about 10 pages. You can, hear me, you can read this thing in about 15 or 20 minutes. The whole book, right? I I read it seven times this last week. It's so easy to get through. But I want to give you a little background on the book of Esther. It's a unique book, and it's unique in this way. In all the books of the Bible, and there are 66 different books in the Bible, there's only two named after women. One of them is Esther. The other one is... Ruth, well done, church people, well done. This book of Esther does not include a priest, nor a prophet. There is no prophecy proclaiming God's voice to the people. There is no priest offering sacrifice. There is no temple. There is no mention of any sacrificial system. There is no mention of anything else in the Mosaic law. There's, did I mention there's no prayer? And in fact, this is my favorite thing in the book, God himself is not even mentioned in it. There's no word Elohim or Yahweh in the scripture at all. In fact, for that reason alone, Martin Luther wondered if the book should be, was challenging the the position of the book in the Bible in general because God wasn't even mentioned. The only tie into the rest of the Old Testament is the fact that two of the main characters are Jewish. We're going to hear about Esther and Mordecai. They're Jewish. One scholar said this, that if you were to replace the word Jew with another ethnicity, 
pick Ethiopian or something, I don't know, and reread the story with that word in there, it would not even appear to be a religious book at all. God makes no um, appearance in the book. So the question that many people ask is why is the book in the Bible? And the question that you and I probably need to ask is why are we then studying it? I'm glad you asked that question. The author of the book is not mentioned. Some people think it's Mordecai. It's possible. We don't know. It doesn't say who wrote the book. But ultimately, and hear me when I say this, ultimately we know this, that if it's in the Scripture, we believe that the Scriptures are inspired by God and God is ultimately the author. Would you agree with that? And the author has some point that he wants to make in the story. Like all historians and or filmmakers or storytellers, they have a point of view that they're trying to present to the reader, to the listener, to the viewer. And if God is the author, then he's telling the story of Esther. And even though he makes no appearance in it, there isn't a point that he wants us to understand. And I think the point might be this. Some people think that the, the, the book of Esther is included in the Bible to explain why Jews celebrate the Feast of Purim. And some of you have maybe heard of Purim or not. It doesn't matter. But it's, it's a festival that Jewish people celebrate every year. But it's not recorded in the book of Moses. Like Moses doesn't require this. This is another festival altogether. And so some people think that that's why Esther's here is so that we can see what happened during the book of Esther. And Esther will talk about this Feast of Purim, or Purim and that's why they celebrate it. But I think, and this is my opinion, and you can throw rocks at me if you'd like, but I think there's a deeper and more significant purpose in this book. And I'll throw all my cards on the table with this statement right here. I think this book shows this, that it demonstrates that even the the hiddenness of God, here when I say this, is not the absence of God. I just said a whole lot of words. Are you with me? Okay, Even, even though God is hidden in this book, it doesn't mean he's absent in this book. And for you and I to look at this book, that's the goal that we're trying to find. We're trying to see how God might be working in our lives, even though we might not see him. I mean, how many people want to admit they want God working in their lives, right? And how many people also want to admit, with another hand, that sometimes you just don't see him working in your lives? Well, this book will encourage us in many ways as we understand that. This book, in my opinion, is a reminder of God's sovereignty. Say sovereignty. We were singing about it earlier. He's sovereign over all. He rules Everything, he is powerful enough to control anything he desires and does so when he wants to. That this book will speak of his sovereignty and his providence, which means this, that he will use that strength and sovereignty along with his wisdom and care for his people and provide in a way that only God can. He is sovereign and he's providential. And lastly, this is my favorite part. Well, it's not my favorite, but it's the one I get to enjoy and as you do too that God gives an invitation to all of us to join him in his work. That's the story of Esther. That's the story of this book we're going to study. God is sovereign, he's providential, and there's an invitation to join him. So we'll go through all 10 chapters, and we'll see where God is working but not visible in it. And I give one final word of caution before we start, a little caveat here. We do not want to moralize the characters in this story. All too often, people look into the story and see characters and say, oh, we need to be more like this person, right? And try to and, and think that somehow is the, the, the theme or the idea behind the book. That's not the theme or the idea behind in, in this book. We don't want to act like this person. If we begin to moralize the issues and the characters in this story, we might miss the overall message and the focus of this book. And hear me when I say this. 
If you believe the words of Jesus, when he spoke to the religious leaders in his day and even some of his own disciples, he said that the Old Testament scriptures speak of who? Him, Jesus. So when we're reading Esther, we're not trying to moralize anything and make some little um, good little sermon that we can take home with us. We're looking for Jesus in the story. Is that okay? All right. I said a whole lot of words. Are you guys still with me? I'm thinking about getting started, and I've only got a few minutes left. <laughs> so... <laughs> Oh my gosh, this, I, I, for the record, I was up at 5.30 this morning and I've already rehearsed this message. I've already practiced it and went 48 minutes. I'm just telling you. <laughs> uh, good luck. You better talk fast. I got a game to watch. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> we're going to be, we're going to be fine. Uh, I never have four pages of notes, but I have four pages of notes. Okay, uh, Cliff, Cliff Notes version to get us up to speed real quick. The book of Esther is set far away from the promised land. The promised land, as Joe talked about last week, in this fertile crescent over next to the Mediterranean Sea, right? And far, far away from them. And the other side of the world is a city called Susa. Susa is the capital city of the Persian Empire. This story takes place in that place. It's the capital of the powerful Persian Empire from 539 to 331 BC. After the Babylonian kingdom destroyed Jerusalem and the temple there and a lot of the Jews living there most of the living Jews were taken into exile pulled away from their promised land and taken into Babylon not many years after that Cyrus the king of Persia defeated the Babylonians and uh, Cyrus did a really cool thing he freed the Jews the Babylonian king kept them away he frees the Jews and allows them to move back to Jerusalem should they want to and a lot of Jews moved back to Jerusalem but some families stayed in the Persian empire and they had these little communities of Jewish people within the, the Persian empire Esther and Mordecai two of the main characters in this story are from those families who stayed behind they did not travel back to Jerusalem and again we're not going to moralize why the Bible doesn't tell us why why didn't they go back to Jerusalem well they should have they wouldn't have had all the trouble they've had doesn't matter the Bible doesn't say you hear what I'm saying right so that's where we're going to pick up the story my goal is to get through chapter one and chapter two today and oh my gosh here we go and uh, there's going to be a lot of pieces missing. I'm only picking a handful of verses. If I'd read every verse, it's 45 verses. You'd fall asleep, I promise. I'm going to go through a handful of verses. You have to fill in the blanks. Read this story on your own. But starting in verse 1, we see the setting of the place. So chapter 1 is the intro to the story. Verses 1 to 3 is the intro to the intro. It says, now in the days of Hazarus, if you read an NIV translation, it'll say Xerxes. They're just Greek translations or, or uh, Hebrew translations here. But Hazarus and Xerxes is the same person. So in the days of Xerxes, the king who reigned over in, from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. The author is telling us that the kingdom of Persia is ginormous. And it's in those days, verse 2, when King Xerxes sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. This is probably in modern day Iran. Verse 3, in the third year of his reign... And so Xerxes took the throne from his dad when his dad died, when he was 32. So Xerxes is 35. Can you imagine Joe being in charge of the Persian Empire at this point? <laughs> Frightening thought, I'm just saying. You are 35, right, Joe? Well, then let's act like it, okay? <laughs> is it okay if we call you Xerxes from here on out? He's like, please. <laughs> Anyways, in the third year of his reign... He gives a feast for all of his officials and his servants. 
The army of Persia comes, and Media, another country that's partnered with uh, uh, Persia, um, and the nobles and the governors and, and of all the provinces came and sat before him. The author is setting the stage here. Know this, that the, the, the kingdom is vast. It's huge. And in those days, everyone traveled by foot. And only the super wealthy might have a horse to get along on. So picture this. If you could only walk from one place to the other and, and you're in this empire, this place in the world, it's, hear me when I say this, it's inescapable to you. You can't get away from it. You can't walk long enough and far enough to escape the reign of Xerxes. It's inescapable. And ultimately, it'd be invincible. I mean, for a while, someone eventually takes them over. But hear me, you're not going to overthrow the Persian Empire. Mordecai's not going to throw the, the Persian Empire. It, they are trapped. God's people here, are, hear me say this, are trapped inside of this Persian Empire. And Xerxes gathers all these people together to show off, look what it says here in verse four. He begins to show the riches of his royal glory. Isn't that an interesting word that the Bible would throw in there? Whose glory do we often talk about when we speak of uh, words in the Bible? God's glory, not Xerxes' glory, but there's some parallel being drawn here. That this Xerxes, this king, wanted to show his glory and all of his splendor and all of his pomp. Say pomp. That's fun to say, isn't it? And the great, and he did this in, in his greatness for many days. He threw a banquet or party for 180 days. What? Check that. Have you ever been to a six-month party before? <laughs> Some of us have. We call it freshman year in college. <laughs> we have done this, haven't we, Blake? And we survived. Yes, well done. But he's showing off all of his glory and everything. We skip some verses here, but pick up in verse 7. It says that the drinks were given or served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine woo, was lavished according to the bounty of the king. Wine was flowing freely. Verse 8, and drinking was according to this edict. There's no compulsion. You don't have to drink. Back in that day, you only drank when the king drank. And if he stopped drinking, you stopped drinking. He's like, do what you want to do. For the king had, no, had given orders for all the staff in his palace so that each man could do as he desired. Can you say debauchery, drunkenness? Just picture this. And he brings all of these nobles and officials together for a purpose. There's a Greek historian. His name is Herodotus. Herodotus lived and wrote about the same period that Xerxes is the king of Persia. And he writes at a time when Xerxes actually brought some nobles together to gather some military people together because he was about to mount an assault against Greece. His dad, Darius I, lost a battle against Greece and he wanted to seek vengeance on his dad's behalf. And so he gathers all of these peoples together. Herodotus records what Xerxes says to these people. Many people believe, I'm one of them, although I don't know any different, that this, this banquet was that time that Herodotus is talking about. And Xerxes said these words, and I'll just read this quote, okay, so bear with me. He said this, this is Xerxes, for this cause I have now summoned you all together that I may, that I may impart to you my purpose. It is my intent to bridge the Hellespont and lead the army through Europe to Greece, that I may punish the Athenians for what they have done to the Persians and to my father. You saw that Darius, my father, was minded to make an expedition against these men, but he is dead, and it was not granted to him to punish them. And so I, and on the Persians' behalf, will never rest until I take care and burn Athens to the ground. 
As for you, nobles, military men, governors, the reason you are here is that you, I'm going to show you how you can best please me. When I declare the time for your coming, every one of you must appear and with goodwill. And whoever shows up with his best army well-equipped shall receive from me such gifts as as reckoned most precious among us. He says, I'm going to go against Greece. You're going to go with me. And if you come with me and help me defeat Greece, I will give you anything you want. And this party for 100 days with golden couches and golden vessels to drink and flowing wine was to prove that he could write the check. That he's showing them that I can do anything I want to do. And so even though God's people are held in this place, it's inescapable, they're trapped inside of it, that oftentimes they feel also tempted to desire the things that the world or the Persian Empire desires. The empire was known for lavish things, was known for power, was known for looks. Everything was driven by looks. We'll see that play out in this story. It's not unlike our, our world today. Would you agree that there are men drive this world and women who are driven by power and make decisions driven by power because they want to be in place of power? And oftentimes, God, people get swept up in the midst of all of that. That's what's happening in this place. And the author is telling us that the empire is vast and large. The world that we live in is vast and large. We can't escape it. It is tempting to want to join them, but it is a dangerous, dangerous place. After 180 days of this party, he throws and sends the military people back home, the governors back home. Uh, Xerxes throws another party for seven days for just the people in the city, probably to thank them, right, for serving the last 180 days. So here's a party for you. So for seven days, they throw another party for all the townsfolk, if you will. And it says this, verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine. (laughs) Sounds like Friday, I'm just saying. For some of you, Blake, and he said he commanded, um, and here's some names. You can read them if you'd like. You done? Seven eunuchs that served the king. He commands those seven guys, verse 11, to bring his queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her what? Her beauty. See, in the kingdom and the, the empire of the world and the empire of the Persian uh, empire, um, looks were everything. Power was everything. And so he says, I want you to go get my queen and tell her to come and make sure she's wearing her crown. Some scholars think he means and crown only. After he's been drinking for seven days, he he's wants to parade his wife in front of these people and show everyone what he's got that they don't. Vashti, verse 11, says no. But Queen Vashti refused to come to the, at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. And at this, the king became what? Enraged. It's a dangerous place to live in the empire, <laughs> especially with a man as diabolical and a drunkard like Xerxes is, who on a whim will command people to parade in front of him with no clothes on. Again, the warning here is to moralize the story that Vashti is a model for all young women. They need to stand up to the man. Right? And be strong women. Hear me when I say this. The Bible does not tell us why Vashti said no. And it would be dangerous for us to infer an idea behind it. One scholar, in fact, thought Vashti might have been pregnant at this time with Xerxes' son, Artaxerxes. And she doesn't want to parade around pregnant. It's her choice. We don't know. 
We know this, she said no. Which leads us to this last little point about the kingdom and the world. That yes, we can feel trapped in it. Yes, it can be tempting to want to join it. And it's a terribly dangerous place. But it's also quite laughable. Because what happens next is hilarious. And you have to see the humor in this. After uh, his anger subsides, he meets with about seven of his own staff, if you will, and they begin to discuss what's going to happen, king, if all the women in our kingdom hear that your wife said no to you. What's going to happen is all the wives are going to begin to say no to all of their husbands, and we, we're going to have a riot on our hands. <laughs> it's basically the, the thrust of this part of the story. Like, this won't go well for us. We men should be in charge, they say. So here's what you should do, king. You should make a law. You should make a law that says all women must submit to their husbands or all, all the husbands must be the ruler of their house. Look here in verse 22. So the king does it. Verse 22, he sends letters to all of the royal provinces, to every province, pro, gosh, I can't talk, to every promise, province in its own script and to every people in its own language. That here it is, that every man should be master in his own household. Hear me. Humor, haha, see the irony here except in the king's household. Do you see this? This is hilarious. So, so the author is telling us the empire, the world system is a big and terrible thing, but it's also quite comical in the things that it thinks it can do. Because even the empire, even the world, even the strongest man in the known world can't command the will of his own wife to do something she doesn't want to do. And that's hilarious to us and hopeful for us. Now we move to chapter 2. And this is fast. I'm going as fast as I can. We're introduced to some new characters, the main characters in the story. Verse 2 of chapter 2 says this, Then the king's young men who attended him, oh, shoot, got to tell you one thing. Uh, sorry, sorry, I forgot. So Vashti is uh, pushed out, no longer king. Um, they're going to send a law out that says men should be master of their house. Fine. Uh, and the other smart thing they thought they should do, let's just go gather up a bunch of young virgins from the kingdom and bring them into the harem of the king, right? And then let the king find one he likes best, and you can just choose her to be king. And so this is about what's going to take place. So we find that, um, unfortunately, to, to live in the kingdom means that you're a person who's potentially going to be exploited, Right? And that happens to people in these empires. The king's young men, verse 2, who attended him, said, Let all the beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all his provinces of his kingdom to gather, to gather up all of these beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of one of the king's eunuchs. And let their cosmetics be given to them. Okay, All kinds of stuff. Verse 4, And let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this pleased the king, so he did so. And so we see here in, a, in an edict given by the king that young girls are ripped from their homes for thousands of miles in every direction. Hundreds, if not thousands of girls are brought before the king and placed in the harem. And one by one, they would line outside the bedroom door of the king. If you, if you, I'm trying to paint a picture for you. And each night he would pick one and see if she pleased him. And the one who pleased him the most would be queen. Are you reading what I'm reading here? Now, this is not the VeggieTales version, right? Where uh, Xerxes got mad because uh, Vashti didn't make him a sandwich. You guys remember that? <laughs> this is not that. This is something altogether real. And we, we, we need not sugarcoat this. That he's, he's ha oh, I'm not going to say it. Anyways, so in verse 5, now there was a Jew in Susa 
Now all of a sudden this takes a, a religious sort of tone, an Old Testament sort of flavor. There's a Jewish person, a man who's in covenant relationship with God is the idea. God had made a covenant with the Jewish people. Hear me when I say this. We who have faith in Jesus Christ are the new covenant people to God. Amen? Amen. So we can sort of play into this story a little bit. The, the things that happened to God's covenant people then, we can sort of expect to see happening to us, God's new covenant people in Jesus Christ. So this Jew in Susa was named Mordecai, and he was the son of Jer, the son of Shammai, the son of Kish. He was a Benjamin, Benjaminite, and that'll come to play in, in a few weeks. We'll leave that there. In verse 7, he was bringing up a girl. Hadassah was her name. That's her Hebrew name. Her Persian name was Esther. She's the main character in the story. She's the, she was the daughter of his uncle. So they're cousins, and she had neither father nor mother. And the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. What? Why is that in here? Remember, the empire cares about things of beauty. It's the author's way of telling us all that matters is if you're beautiful and you can please the king. And if you can, then be prepared to be exploited is the, is the picture that we're getting here. And so she was beautiful to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her in as his own daughter. So we see here that God's people oftentimes live as exiles, right? So God's people, so here, you and I, the parallel for us is you and I, as God's people, we live in exile in the world around us, right? And sometimes the world is tempting for us, yeah? Sometimes we feel trapped in the world. Why can't we just go be with God 24-7? We'll get a day to do that, you know what I'm saying? Anyways. So, and the people are vulnerable in this kingdom. Verse 8, so when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, gosh, what was, they, what was that day like? I, I promise you there were no parades. There was not shouting and jubilee and joy. This is a sorrowful day when those women were gathered away from their people and their families and dragged to, to Susa. Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. She was ripped out of Mordecai's home, too, because she was pretty, I guess, and a virgin, which is, I guess, all it takes to be wanted by the king. Verse 10, Esther had not made known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Just a little aside to tell us she told nobody she was Jewish. In literary work, this is called foreshadowing. Something bad is going to take place to the Jewish, or going to take place to Jewish people, and so Mordecai. I don't know if he senses this or knows this, or the author is just telling us. But they did not tell other people they were Jewish, and oftentimes you and I act that way too. We don't want to tell people we're Christians or we follow after God because we don't want the repercussions that come from it. Right? You no longer get invited to the parties. You no longer get invited to the things because you follow Jesus. My favorite thing to do is when people find out I'm a pastor is listen to them immediately try to clean up their speech. And when, they, and when they cuss in front of me, they apologize immediately. And I found the easiest way to diffuse that situation is to just cuss back at them. <laughs> it's, the, it's my favorite thing to do. Not at them, but with them. You know what I'm saying? What words do you say? I, I won't tell you. <laughs> but I know them all. Verse 12, now when it came, um, I'm, I'm, I'm about to throw up, guys. I'm telling you, this stuff bothers me. I have two daughters. This bothers me. I need you to read this the way it's, it's intended to be read. <sighs> I 
When the turn came for each young woman to go into the king, and after 12 months of the regulations and all the beautifying that takes place, verse 13, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. The idea is, tonight's your night, Susie. You got to go with the king. And if you want to take something from the harem to go with you, because when, after you meet with the king, you no longer come back to the harem. You actually go live with the concubines now. And if you know the difference, you know the difference. And you can take something with you if you want. And I'm telling you, this, it, this, I can't read this any other way, but this is payment for what's about to take place. This is, this is I don't call it hush money, but this is, you're going to go do something you don't want to do. Does anyone see it this way? I could overreach. I'm sorry. I don't know. Some people think that it's a way. Take something you think the king might like. That's a pretty spin on it. Take, and he might choose you to be queen. This is nothing but a sex contest. <laughs> Pastor Josh likened it to um, The Bachelor. And I, I didn't know Josh watched The Bachelor, but I do now. <laughs> and I've never seen this show. But there's that, I guess there's that time when they get to go on dates with, oh, you know. They turn the cameras off at some point, right? Well, same here. So take something with you. Call it yours, whatever. Verse 16, and when Esther was taken to the king into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is in the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Real quick. When we started the story, it was the third year of his reign. This is now the seventh year of his reign. Four years have passed. Scholars believe Xerxes had launched his assault against Greece during this time. And he got beat. If you've seen the movie 300, that's the story. Xerxes is trying to get into Greece and 300 Spartans or Athenians or whatever, they defeated him there. With tail between his legs, he retreats back to Susa. Herodotus records for us that after he had lost, he depleted the, the, the treasuries of the empire and he began to lust after sensual things. Like his whole focus shift in life. Who cares about the Greeks? I don't want to beat them anymore. I just want to feed myself. Give me the women, give me the stuff, give me the whatever, and just begin to go after sensual desires. Four years, in that four years, it appears that this is when that took place. So you can see all of these women lined up before him, and on one night, Esther is chosen to go before him. And something happens in verse 17. It says, the king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she won his grace and favor. And he set the royal crown on her head. We mustn't moralize the story here either. And, and for people to take Esther and go, what, a, <laughs> what an idol for young women to look up to, I think is the wrong story here. It's the wrong picture of what the author's trying to paint. She was abused. She was taken advantage of. She was exploited. That's what powerful empires do. And God's people get swept up in that sometimes. I mentioned earlier, though, that even though God is hidden in this, he's still active in it. And that's a painful thought to consider with what just took place to her. God is still in this story. And he's working through circumstances and situations. And that's a tough one to swallow. But for time, we move on. Going down to verse 21. 
It says in the days of Mordecai, sorry, in those days, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. It's a picture of Mordecai has a job. He's got a J-O-B with the, the king. He works for the king, sitting at the gate, probably judging, doing some things, whatever. While he's there, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the gate became angry and sought to lay hands on the king. So Mordecai learns of this assassination attempt by these two eunuchs. And he goes, verse 27, or 22, sorry, and he goes and tells Esther about it. And Esther tells the king. And she says, Mordecai told me this. He works for you down at the gate, heard two guys trying to kill you, right? So king, verse 23, when the affair was investigated and found to be true, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. What's interesting here in the empire and in the world, we expect righteous things to go unrewarded, um, don't we? It's like whenever you do the right thing, no one seems to notice or care. And the author gives us a picture of that here, that Mordecai actually saved the king. He did something righteous. And kings were known to do um, amazing, give amazingly large, lavish gifts to people who protected them. Mordecai did so. But it makes no mention that Mordecai was given a reward. Spoiler alert, he gets one later. But the story has to play out first. And so the author is just laying this out for us. Are you with me now? That the empire of the world of which God's people live in is a terrible place. Powerful men exploit young people, old people, religious people, non-religious. And it's all of those things is taking place within this thing. And then when you do a righteous thing within it, the empire doesn't even reward you for it. This is a terrible place to be. Are you picking up what the author is trying to put down? Are you with me or should I start over? <laughs> yes. Please don't start over. So I'll finish with this. And I think I did okay. Right? We'll see. But we people, we can feel oftentimes trapped in the, in the world. We can feel tempted in the world. And we can feel exploited. And we can sometimes feel like we have... Two identities. I think that's the picture of him, the author, using Hadassah, her Hebrew name, and Esther, her Persian name. That there's this picture that sometimes we have these two identities and we're trying to live in two places. Um, it, it, maybe that's true or not. I don't know. But I, I sense that in my own life. Sometimes I, I feel very much a Christian, particularly on Sundays when I'm preaching. I feel very much like I'm a Christian. But some days I don't, anyone. Right? And it shouldn't be that way. It's not intended to be that way. This, this is there. This is different. Um, all that to say this, if the Old Testament books are talking about Jesus, where's Jesus in this? See, there has to be a distinction between what's happening historically in that book, that true story that God is telling us, and what Jesus offers us. Now, for us, immediately, we have to recognize that Jesus is the anti-Xerxes. He's not a man who's hungry for power. He's not a man who's demanding things over people. He's not exploiting anyone. In fact, the Bible tells us that Jesus, even though he is powerful and has riches the universe can even, can't even count, he left all of that behind and humbled himself like a servant and came to earth to dwell amongst men. On the evening of his, of his arrest, the day before his crucifixion, he girded himself with a towel and washed his disciples' feet. Jesus is the opposite of the power-hungry king. And he's the king we serve. His kingdom is the upside-down kingdom to the kingdom that Esther and Mordecai have to live in. And we have hope in Jesus to live a different way. 
when Jesus was brought before Pilate and he was asked this question, so they tell me you're a king. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds in John chapter 18 and he says, um, I mean, like the, uh, my version. <laughs> I mean, the answer is yes. But I, I can't even say yes to that because you have to understand my kingdom in distinct contrast to the world's kingdoms. And Jesus says these word, words, my kingdom is not of this world. Because if it was, then my soldiers would be out fighting right now. My, my father would be defending me or whatever. But my, we don't do that in my kingdom. That's how the kingdom of the world works. That's how the empires of the world works. So here's the push, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. Which kingdom do you want to dwell in? Which kingdom do you want to serve? Which king do you trust the most? Which one, Joe? Which one? That's your homework. Which one? You have to decide. I have a, a lot more I want to say right now, but I also want to just leave this, ten this tension. <laughs> like the easy thing to do, this is what pastors do every week, and if you'd like to follow Jesus, right, let's just do a prayer right now. And I think that's appropriate, but I think that's between you and God. <laughs> like I want you to have tension right now. I want you to consider this. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to, I'm going to pray. I'm going to close. I'm going to call the band back. We're going to do one more song. And maybe during that song, you'll just have a real conversation with the Lord. Well, everybody else is singing and declaring, right, their adoration towards God or whatever the song is. Maybe you'll just sit in your seat and go, Lord, I don't want to follow the king of this world anymore. I don't want to, I want to follow you. I, I want to trust you. Maybe you just have that conversation with the Lord. And, um, and after the service, if you want to come up front here, we'll meet you up front. We'll talk to you about that. Maybe, maybe you'll do that for the first time today. Maybe some of you, this would be like the third time in your life that you've actually said, you know what? I used to follow the Lord and then I drifted. I did so. I don't know what happened. I mean, I'm an idiot, right? You are. Let's be honest. And um, I mean, I'll tell you, I love you. But you, you just... And you got the merch, the bumper sticker, and you whatever, the necklace with the thing on it. But you're just not there, bro. You're not in that place. And um, and here, here when I say this, like, the Lord knows. Like, oh, my gosh, he knows that life's hard. He, he knows it's easy to 
to drift. He knows it's, the world is tempting. He knows, all, he knows all of that. And he's faithful and he loves us anyways. And there always will be an invitation to return to him. Always will be an invitation to return. And so for some of you, that's this next few moments. That's, that's your work, man. That's it. I'll, I'll pray and then um, here would you stand with me let's pray God we we want to know you and know who you are and and we want to allow stories like uh, the one we're learning about in Esther um, even though we haven't gotten far into it. <laughs> but you do work on the behalf of your people. And, and, and again, even though you're hidden, doesn't mean you're not working. And, and we want that, Lord. But for right now, Lord, we, before we get to that part of the story, we, we need to see the danger of the world that we live in. And that it is, it's, its teeth desire nothing but to exploit us and to destroy us. And our only hope of rescue is in Jesus Christ. It's our only hope. And so we, we thank you for your son Jesus. And we ask God that you would use your Holy Spirit to draw us towards him. That you would open our eyes to see the beauty of who Jesus is. And that we would say yes to his kingdom. Yes to his will for our lives. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would now begin to speak into all of our minds how you have orchestrated events, even in our own life up to today, where you were present and we missed you. That random run-in at the mall with someone who invited you to church, that random thing on the radio that just seemed to speak comfort into you, that random prayer like Joe prayed for me this morning that just encouraged me. And then when my daughter called, God, God only you set stuff like that up. Only you can do that. And help us to see that. And help us to see what you're doing in our lives. God, we thank you. And we love you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for joining with us today. We would love to pray for you and make a connection with you. So please check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Here you can ask questions, request prayer, find past messages and podcasts, or support Renaissance through online giving. We can't wait to hear from you.